0: Pick back up here. So, Zechariah chapter seven and Zechariah chapter eight are a uh, conversational is not the right word, but a normal uh, structure of things. It's not visions. It's not prophecies. It's kind of like a sermon to the people of Israel in which Zechariah is rebuking them about their false worship of God. Both of them involve this idea of fasting. Um, and uh, as I think I mentioned when we started this, uh, the notes that I'm referring to primarily, along with some other things I've looked at, are from Dr. Kyle Dunham down at uh, DBTS. He taught, oh, it's probably been eight years ago now, uh, when I was in the Sunday school there at Inner City, taught through the book of Zachariah, found his uh, explanation of it very helpful, so I've uh, referred to his notes a fair bit in our study of it. But um, here in his notes, he quotes a guy who says, the subject of fasting occurs about 59 times in the Bible. 13 are negative associations or corrective teaching. The other 46 are totally favorable, give it at least basic approval, or don't give any significant moral connotation. In general, fasting is viewed favorably as long as certain spiritual boundaries are in place. The correctives show that fasting has no meaning if it has hypocrisy as a characteristic of it. And like with sacrifice, think about Saul I desire obedience rather than sacrifice, right? Um, fasting loses its significance if it is done with a heart of sin before God. So there are five contexts or purposes for fasting in Scripture. So. Uh, Let's turn over to Judges chapter 23. No, chapter 20. All right. So, Judges chapter 20, verse 26. Someone read that for us, please, when you get there. Okay, so why? Uh, I don't know, the the larger context of what's happening is the uh, terrible things that happened to uh, the concubine of the man in the city of Benjamin. And so he basically sends this grisly message to all of the tribes and says, look what happened in Benjamin, and so they come up and attack Benjamin. And so they say, all right, we're going to go and we're going to attack all the people of Benjamin. And then it says in verse 25, right before what Tina read, that 18,000 men of the sons of Israel fell. And then the people wept, and they remained before the Lord and fasted. So what is the context for fasting here? Just from that specific verse, regardless of all the context, but I just wanted to explain a little bit of the context. Grief. Grief, yeah. So it's an expression of grief or sorrow. There's an association with that. Okay, There are a couple of other examples of this, but uh, for sake of continuing on, I think that one clearly establishes it. Uh, let's turn over to, uh, we just looked at this fairly recently, look at Ezra chapter 9. So I'm trying to uh, let's see the specific verse here. Mm. Okay, let's uh, actually look at Ezra 10 verse six. Someone read Ezra 10 six for us. We were to look at Nehemiah 9 and verse 1: On the 24th day of this month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So, if we take those two passages together, what would we see as a reason or a, a context for fasting here in, this, in these examples? Okay. Yeah. So the first one was more just grief or repentance. The second would be, a gr- sorry, grief or sorrow. So a sign of repentance. So there would be an aspect of confession, um, dealing with guilt, all those sorts of things, right? Okay. So grief or sorrow, but then not just grief or sorrow, which can be an isolation from that, but Grief or sorrow is a sign of repentance, dealing with sin. Okay? Uh, A third example of fasting would be um, let's turn to Daniel chapter 6. I'm going to read for us, please, verse eighteen. Him, and was the okay. So, why is the king fasting? What's the story we know from the Book of Daniel? Okay, what's the story we all know from the book of Daniel? Okay, the dreams. But even more than that. He was for Daniel. Because Daniel was where? In the, lion's in the lion's den. Okay, so there seems to be an element in which the king is moving toward uh, a relationship with God and is perhaps, even though the verse doesn't say it, praying to God. So let's look at another example Um, Let's see here, Uh, Daniel 9 verse 3 through, uh, how about 9, 3 through 5, that would probably give us a good summary, Daniel 9, 3 to 5, who wants to read that? Robert, go ahead. Okay, so if we were to take these couple of passages, there are other ones as well. There's the one in Matthew that we're probably fairly familiar with, Matthew 6, when you fast, do it in this way. What would we say is this maybe third example of the purposes of fasting? Okay, use a shorter word to help with what? What supplication a type of? Yeah, it's a type of prayer, right? So, to help in prayer, right? So, we're bringing something before God. Um, Supplication, I would say, is a subset of prayer. So, I think broadly, we could just say that it's to help with prayer. So, how does, um, maybe we could say help focus prayer or something like that. How do we, um, how do we, how would we understand it helping us to focus in prayer, bye What about the sackcloth? Okay. What? Um, let's develop that a little bit more. It, it has to do with our outward appearance. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. Okay. Humbling. Okay. Humbling. Okay. Yeah. So uh, we're getting to Zechariah seven. We're not quite back there yet. So. Um, I think if we look at all the examples, and I haven't studied all of them exhaustively, but just the ones that I'm thinking of offhand, if we were to look at the examples of fasting, uh, particularly in the context of what Daniel has going on, there's definitely overlap between these. Right? They're not distinct, but they're 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 different aspects of the same kind of idea. And so, if it ha- it helps us in prayer, because, um, I mean. I hear what you're saying about food being a distraction. I think maybe I would say that it helps us to practice self-control, right? And it helps us to show humility because when we're concerned about our outward appearance and when we are focused on pleasing ourselves when it comes to something like food or having our needs met, we are not as concerned about the needs of people around us or the more fundamental needs then even food and shelter and all those sorts of things. And so when those are taken away to a degree, when God had the people of Israel uh, live in tents, and when they didn't have... I mean, if you go camping, what do you sometimes not have access to? Running water, electricity, all of those sorts of things? Yeah, all those sorts of things. So, but that um, there is a degree of appreciation of those things when you have them again, right? which should ultimately point us to who? To God. to God, because God's the one who has provided. In the same way, there's a humility instead of saying, I'm most concerned about my appearance before people, so I will wash myself so that I am clean, I will dress myself so that I am pleasing to the appearance of other people, I will eat food so that I feel satisfied. When we temporarily set aside those things, for the sake of focusing on God and not prioritizing all those things, but instead prioritizing prayer and walking with God, it is an opportunity to focus in a way that we often don't amid uh, all of the distractions that we have. Now, can you be devoted to God in prayer and take a shower, dress simply, eat a quick meal, and then still be devoted to God? Yes! Yes! But what we tend to do is, there are extremes about this in society, right? Um, We're going to have a meal that we're at the meal for like two hours, right? And, you know, there are people who do that maybe only really occasionally, like, uh, you know, a wedding or something, right? And there are other people who do that as a regular habit, right? We're going to be at this meal for two hours and we're going to, you know, we're going to drink wine. And we're going to have a good time, and you know all these sorts of things, right? We're just going to really enjoy life, right? So that would be an extreme toward the direction of some of the things that the prophets repuse. Re, I'm sorry, rebuke, the reprove, rebuke. I think I was trying to combine those words. Uh, the leaders for at various points um, when it comes to the idea of of uh, becoming clean versus having ashes on your head, right? There is a scenario in which you can get a two-minute shower, five-minute shower, whatever it is, and get ready for the day and move on with life, right? Or you can do a bubble bath and have a hot tub and all that sort of thing. Like It's it's like a really drawn-out, luxurious experience that's very focused on you, right? Same thing when it comes to um, appearance kind of things, right? That you can get ready in a reasonable amount of time, or you can spend hours and hours and hours obsessing over your appearance in various ways, right? And so, if there are the two polar opposites of complete indulgence and complete neglect, fasting is much closer to the end of the complete neglect for the sake of focusing on walking with God in that moment and, and really thinking about what you're doing in prayer and all those sorts of things. Now. The reality is, I think, for if you have never fasted and you try to fast for purposes of prayer, it's going to be really hard, right? Um, now, does it have to exclusively be food? I don't love the idea of Lent because I think it's very hypocritical, for the most part. Like, I'm going to give up Brussels sprouts. Well. You didn't want those anyway, so that's not much of a sacrifice, right? Or, I'm going to give it up during the day, but then at night we're really going to party. Or we're going to make technicalities like, well, we're not going to eat cheeseburgers, but we're going to gorge ourselves on fish. Like, that's just a lot of hypocrisy, right? Um, the, the idea, though, of saying we will set aside distractions to focus on our relationship with God, I think gets to the heart of what fasting is meant to accomplish, right? And so if you say, you know what? I really like food, but food is not this huge distraction for me, but watching Netflix is, set it aside for a time. You're like, well, watching Netflix isn't a huge distraction for me, but getting catalogs in the mail that show me new fishing boats, that's a real distraction, unsubscribe from them. You know, my point is, there are things that are distractions, and when we can come to set those aside. That gives us the opportunity to connect with God. Alright, we spent a while on that one. Let's go to the fourth one, which is, um, let's look at Exodus 34, verse 28. We'll come back to Zechariah in a minute, but... Exodus thirty four twenty eight. Someone want to read that for us? James, go ahead. Uh, Exodus 4, 28. Moses told Aaron all the way... 34, 28, sorry. Oh, what's that? Yeah, thirty four twenty 28.
1: Oh, 34, 28. Ooh, okay.
0: Yeah, no problem. Still talking about the same characters just a little bit later in the story. Okay,
1: Thirty four twenty eight. 28. Wow, pages are sticking. Sorry about this. Ladies and gentlemen? You're fine. So there, so there he was, so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat bread or drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments.
0: Okay, so how long was Moses fasting and with God? 40 days and 40 nights. Does that remind us of anything else? Yeah, well, there's Noah, the, the being in the ark for a long period of time, right? There's a um, Jesus in Matthew four. Uh, we don't have to, yeah, in the wilderness. We don't have to turn there, but First Kings nineteen eight, same thing with Elijah. Okay, so you have three key leaders. So it would be um, an an opportunity to rely on God, experience His presence, potentially preparation for spiritual leadership. Okay, and then, um, hold on one second here, there are two fours in this, so there actually might be six that he lays out here, because we have one, two, three, four, four, and five. We'll just call it six things. All right, um, so the fourth one here is, we're just going to say prep for leadership right so there is this sort of turning point in the ministry of for example Elijah Moses Elijah and Jesus okay so connecting with God preparing for leadership and in in the aspects of all of these there has to be a degree of relying on God right okay Yep. Very, very stressful. Yeah. All right, turn back to Leviticus 16. Or, sorry, forward actually. Leviticus 16. 29 to 31. Who wants to read that? 29 to 31. Braden? we call this? If they have an assigned day that they have to fast, what are some phrases we could use to describe that for the Israelites? What's that? Did you say you said Lint? Okay. <laughs> we could call it that. That's not what it's called there. The, this is specifically called the Day of Atonement, which is an example of what sort of thing? It's a public public worship, right? Okay. So there could be a ceremonial or a public day of worship such as the day of atonement okay so that would be the fifth example and then the last one the second five is um, people sort of being set aside for a task so let me just glance at first Kings because I'm not remembering the reference here Uh, Okay, so 1 Kings 13, I'll just summarize it for you because it kind of involves the whole chapter. There was a prophet who was sent to prophesy against Jeroboam. And he does that, and then God had commanded him to... The king said, come home and refresh yourself, I'll give you a reward... But he said, I won't do it. God commanded me, eat no bread, drink no water. And then there was an old prophet who comes and tries to get the man to do the same thing. He says, come home with me and eat bread. I cannot do it because the Lord has commanded me not to. So this man says, I am a prophet. And God said to me, bring him back that he can. But he lied to him. So he went back, ate bread, and drank water. And then... The word of the Lord came to the prophet, and he cried to the man of God who came from Judah, Thus says the Lord, because you've disobeyed, then your body will not come to the grave of the fathers. And a lion meets him on the way and kills him, and they threw his body in the street. So here's the irony. The The old prophet who wasn't following God lies to the young prophet to get him to disobey God. And then God speaks through the old prophet to condemn the first prophet who had sinned, And then the old man hears that it's the word of the Lord, and then he mourns and buries and lays him in his own grave and seems to be coming to a moment of repentance for his former sin against his fellow prophet. That's a whole other thing about the word of the Lord being fulfilled, which is a major theme in the book of Kings. But, why was the prophet fasting in connection with what God had sent him to do? consecration, dedication of the task, something along those lines, right? Okay. So that would be our sixth example. So um, to, uh, I'll just put to help in a task for God. Would that be the commitment to obedience? Yeah, there definitely needs to be a commitment to obedience, but um, I, we're just putting broadly as a category that fasting can help us potentially focus on a task that God wants us to do. And it could be intentional or it could be sort of accidental. I think this is focused on it being intentional. I'm going to fast so that I can focus on the task, as opposed to what I think tends to happen for us, which is we're so busy doing the task that we don't take time to eat, right? Which is sort of an incidental parallel, but not really the same kind of focus. All right, any quick thoughts on this before we move on to what this has to do with for um, Zechariah, chapter 7? Normal. So, Godly sorrow brings repentance. Godly sorrow does bring repentance, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think along the lines of Godly sorrow bringing repentance, I think we would do well to consider um, whether we um, whether we are as committed or thoughtful about repentance as God's people were in older times. In other words, I'm not saying that we have to fast and put on sackcloth and put ashes on our head. However, the fact that we would never even consider doing that, but say, oh yeah, I've repented. like There's a degree to which repentance involves humbling and acknowledgement and all of those sorts of things, and to the degree that we're like, Yeah, I'm willing to repent as long as it's not a big deal for me or causes me lots of problems. We're probably not entering into the spirit of repentance we see in the Old Testament. So, that's a good point, Norma. Okay. So, this is the context of what we see in the Old Testament, these five or six categories of when fasting would take place. As a sign of grief or sorrow, as a sign of building on that, grief or sorrow, but then leading to repentance to help focus prayer as preparation for leadership and, and practice on relying on God, as a thing of ceremonial public worship, and then to help in a task for God. So, a lot of overlap, but these are, I think, distinct categories. So, um, in the Old Testament, has God dealt with the people of Israel about fasting? Yes. So, Isaiah 58, Isaiah denounces Israel for insincere fasting. They fasted, and then said, God, why haven't you noticed? And God says, because you fast, and then you go out and murder each other and oppress the poor and all these other sorts of things. Your fasting has no meaning if, when you're sinning in that way. Jeremiah says a similar thing. Um, Although they fast, I will not listen to their cry. Though they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. He doesn't answer their questions about fasting, but uses their questions as a springboard to point them back to how God wants them to be. So now we come to Zechariah chapter 7. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, and the town of Bethel sent two people, Sherezer and Regimelech, and their men to seek the favor of the Lord, and speaking to the priests, saying, Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these many years? So, they're saying, Should we have a fast in the fifth month of the year? Now we're going to see... In chapter 8, verse 19, the fast of the 4th, 5th, 7th, and 10th months will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts. So they're only asking about one of those four times of potential fasting, right? So the one in Leviticus, uh, you don't have to turn back there, but um, the Day of Atonement one, I think, was in the 7th month. Yeah, seventh month, okay. Yeah, so this one in the uh, fifth month is a thing that the Jews today would do. They commemorated what was called the ninth of the month of Ab. This was a fast day commemorating the fall of Jerusalem, which according to Scripture occurred on the seventh day of the fifth month, 2 Kings 25.8. So this would have been in 586 B.C., when did Jerusalem fall, and uh, they were carried away into exile. In Jewish tradition, this is also held to be the day on which both the first temple and the second temple were destroyed. Jewish historians also link this day to when the spies refused to enter the land, when the Romans put down the Bar Kokhba revolt in AD 133, when the Jews were expelled from England in 1290, from Spain in 1492, when Germany declared war against the Allies in 1914, that cons- commenced the conflict of World War I that, co- that resulted in World War II and the Holocaust. Now, all of those historical events, I think, are a lot harder to correlate to this specific day, even though that is the tradition that, that we're holding it to be a reminder of all of these terrible events throughout our history. But in this moment, much of that has not yet happened, right? The only thing that's happened at this point is what we have clearly recorded in Scripture, the fall of Jerusalem and the connected fall of the destruction of the temple that Solomon had built. So, it's also important to note, did did God command them to mourn over the fall of Jerusalem? As, as, a, as a ceremonial public worship kind of thing. What's the only one, I said a minute ago, what's the only one He commanded them in the law? Day of Atonement. So that's in the seventh month, as we just said a moment ago. So the fifth month one was not required by God. So they're coming and saying, this thing that you didn't require God, in which we fast before you, should we keep doing it? Right? That's the question they're asking. This takes place... Uh, according to these notes here, in 518, in the month of December, almost two years after the night visions and two years before the completion of the temple. However, the, the priest and all of the structure of things is there, even though the temple is not yet completed. And so they're probably asking about the, the day coming up again. They're asking about the day coming down again. So um, God, it says, takes the opportunity to expose hypocrisy of the people who are only observing this fasting for a religious show. Okay. So what's God's answer? Someone read verses four through seven. Who wants to read? Uh, Zachariah Jonathan, go ahead. Thank you. Seven, four, seven. Yes. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, "Say to all the people of the land and to the priests." When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, these 70 years, was it actually for me that you fasted? When you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves, and do you not drink for yourselves? Are not these the
1: words which the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited
0: and prosperous along with the cities around it, and the Negev and the foothills were inhabited? Okay. So, were they doing it for themselves? So, they say, should we keep doing it? And God says, were you doing it in the right way to begin with? Right? Um, When he says, when the Negev and the foothills were inhabited, and when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous, what's sort of the picture he's painting? We have a three-word phrase to describe this. You're talking about the time that came before when everything was great. Back in the day, that's for the good old days, right? Good old days. Right? So they have there's sort of this idea back when everything was good the prophets warned you about fasting and your attitude before God and your observation of worship and all those sorts of things. In the time since then, the exile has happened. And the people have now come back. This whole time that you've been doing it while they were gone, and now what you're doing as they come back, what was your motive for doing it? That's what God is asking them to think about. Someone read um, verses 8 through 14. Who wants to read 8 through 14 for us? Bob? In the
1: word of not listen, says the Lord of hosts, but I scattered them with a storm wind among all the nations whom they have not known. Thus the land is desolated behind them so that no one went back and forth, for they made the pleasant land desolate.
0: So verses 13 and 14 we'll get to in a minute. Um, is probably referring to a future time. Some of the comments of Jesus, what happens in A.D. 70, all those sorts of things, um, which is a fascinating thing to the extent that they would correlate the fall of the first temple and the fall of the second temple, and the occasion of the fall of the first temple was spiritual hypocrisy, and the occasion of the fall of the second temple was also spiritual hypocrisy. It's just a lot of fascinating connections between all of these events that are still relevant for them hundreds of years later, right? But... Let's, let's look at verses 9 and 10. What is it that God is calling them to do? To care about their neighbors and yeah. actually take action if necessary. Alright, so we don't have to turn back there. Let me read for you from Leviticus 19. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God, I am the Lord. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly, so you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So, I think it's easy for us to look at Jesus' words in Matthew where He says, you've heard that it was said, um, don't kill someone. And He says, don't even hate them. And we feel like Jesus is adding to what was in the Old Testament. It was, God already said it. Um, in, the, in the thing about adultery, He says, don't commit adultery. Jesus says, if you desire in your heart, that's already in the commandment that God gave them about coveting. Right? So Jesus is calling them back to the heart of what God had called them to in the first place. That's down the road. Right here, what Zechariah is doing is saying, before the exile, did you live up to God's basic command, love your neighbor as yourself? No. After the exile, how are you doing right now? Are you loving your neighbors yourself? Because if the answer is no, and he seems to be implying pretty strongly the answer is no, if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, does God really care whether you fast once a year, four times a year, or not at all? You didn't learn the lesson. Right. So, you know, we come to Jesus' words in the New Testament where he says, if you um, go to bring your sacrifice to God, and remember that there is something between you and your neighbor, go and deal with it, and then bring your sacrifice to God, otherwise God will not accept your sacrifice. Think about the story of Cain and Abel. We tend to think that God didn't accept Cain's sacrifice because it was the wrong sacrifice, and that was part of it. But perhaps as much a part of it was the fact that as he is bringing the offering, he is seeing God's response to his brother, and he is jealous of his brother, and he hates his brother, and God says, with that sort of attitude in your heart, I would not have accepted your sacrifice, even if it was the right thing. Right. Um, And so we have the story of Saul where God says kill all of this group and instead he keeps all the animals to offer to God in sacrifice and God says I didn't need the sacrifices, I didn't need the animals, I wanted your obedience. So there's all of these examples throughout the Old Testament where people thought that God was most concerned about the sacrifice or the fasting or the prayer or the whatever and God was actually concerned about their hearts being right before him and then directed toward being right toward the people around them. How do we know, what are some ways that we know that the people, their fasting was hypocritical? Think about what's going on in the time period. Do the prophets warn the people about anything after the exile that shows their fasting was hypocritical during the exile? Malachi has some things that say a lot about what subject? Anybody remember? Tithing, right? So if they're not tithing to God, how does that show their fasting is hypocritical? Braden? Yes. Yeah, so the fasting of the fifth month was not required of them, according to the law of Moses. But they're doing it anyway as a sign of devotion to God. God did require the people to do the tithe. It was a kind of tax that went to the support of the Levites. And when they didn't fulfill that, the Levites weren't provided for, which then had a ripple effect on the Levites finding justification to not trust God's provision and to figure things out their own way and potentially be um, working with the kings to oppress the people. And so when the people weren't tithing, their fasting meant nothing if they weren't doing one of these basic things God told them to do, right? What was another thing that the people did that showed that their fasting was hypocritical? What did God say to them? We just looked at it last week. What did God say to them in the book of Ezra? What does Ezra rebuke them for? Don't do what? When it comes to the nations around you. Yeah, don't marry the pagan peoples around you. But when they refused to obey God and continue to do that throughout the exile, their fasting was not the most important thing at that point, right? Um, particularly when it was not a fast that God had required. So to say, I'm coming before you, God, I'm really dedicated to you, and I'm fasting, I'm coming before you, but I'm going to ignore you and commit immorality with people who hate you, or I'm going to marry people who hate you and make them like join us together when there's no fellowship there, that, that is another sign of it. Um, an example that I don't think we got into, but that's in the book of Nehemiah, and I was looking over the book of Nehemiah, because I was thinking about maybe going there next, but we're actually going to something in the New Testament this morning, the morning service. And so, uh, in Nehemiah, Nehemiah rebukes them for charging interest to poor fellow Israelites who had, couldn't you know, buy seed for their crops. They're like, well, we'll help you out, but we're going to charge you interest. And the people basically say, we've mortgaged our father's inheritances, we have nothing left. And Nehemiah rebukes those who are in power and oppressing the people who have nothing and saying, is this what God wants of you? So the fact that they are not bringing in the tithe, that they are oppressing their fellow Israelites, that they're intermarrying with the people of the land, and then coming to God and saying, should we keep fasting? Do we we still need to do this? Before we're too hard on them, do we come before God and say, God... Uh, Are you pleased with the number of times I'm reading my Bible this week? But I have lust in my heart toward all these people around me. Hey God, are you pleased that I'm giving this much time to do whatever, but I really hate my neighbor because they give me grief, right? God, are you pleased that but I am more concerned about whether people think I'm a good person than whether I actually walk with you? The message that God's rebuking the people of Israel for here is something that's still relevant today. Even though we are not commanded to fast, there's the passage where Jesus says um, the, when the bridegroom is there, there won't be fasting. When he leaves, there will be fasting. I think is saying that there is an appropriateness but not a requirement for there to be fasting in the absence of the one that the fasting is supposed to direct us toward. I would I would argue the New Testament does not require us to fast nor does it exclude us from fasting but the point is if we're going to do it we can't do it in a way that comes before God and says God I'm I'm coming before you to be accepted but I'm I'm doing all these things that you hate but but I'm doing this one thing like the Pharisees why did Jesus rebuke the Pharisees cuz they fasted so everybody knew that they were fasting. They just, their clothes were all disheveled. Their hair was a mess. They didn't wash themselves. They, they just had this really sad look on their faces. And everybody knew that they were fasting. And Jesus said, But look, your neighbor lady's a widow and she's starving. You're concerned about fasting so everybody notices you. Something wrong here? Absolutely. We can have the same kind of spiritual hypocrisy. So we'll pick up with chapter 8 next week. Uh, for sake of time, but that's kind of the background to fasting uh, in the Old Testament and then uh, some of the things that God's talking about. Chapter 8 that we'll look at next week is a hopeful picture of the future in which God says, this is going to be, like right worship of me will be practiced. And He's calling the people of Israel to that future vision. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to look at these truths. Help us to... Take them to heart and realize this wasn't just a problem some 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago. This is a problem that we still deal with today, that we want to externally do things that look good to other people or add things to our lives that you have not required of us as a sign of our devotion to you while abandoning the very things you called us to do. Lord, help us not to be spiritually blind in that way, but to repent, to draw close to you, to cling to the things that you actually require of us to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with you as our God. To remember that you are a God who desires mercy more than sacrifice. That we should value your word, that we should spend time with you, but that if that time with you and if that value of your word, at least in the way that we um, think about it in our minds, doesn't lead to a transformation the way that we live, it's not having the effect you intended it. And in fact, we may not be very close to you at all. So Lord, help us to examine our hearts in this way. In Christ's name, amen.